Good morning, everybody. So good to see you. If you don't know me, as Matthew said, my name is Richard, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's great to be together. Um, I'm sure that uh, Gordon and Sandy have, well, I know they've expressed the terribly sad news about Nick Haynes dying yesterday. I'm really sorry I wasn't here for that earlier on. I've uh, been up preaching at Alder Road, and um, I appreciate that not everyone knew Nick, but I, I think it's fair to say that he'd been very, very unwell for an incredibly long time. Actually, hadn't even been at church apart from one or two occasions over, I think, about the last year. But uh, nonetheless, for those of us who knew him, this is a shock and a sadness. And uh, having only found out about, my, about it myself last night and dealing with my own thoughts and deep sadness about this, I'll be honest and say that I wasn't entirely sure how to play it this morning, but as I considered this last night and prayed, I think there are a few things that I do want to say. Number one, this goes without saying for any of us who are Christians, but we know that death is not the end. It's a brutal enemy, but it does not have the final word, and it's important that we take our stand on that. We look ahead with hope to the resurrection. Secondly, Nick was much loved. He was a very troubled but a very lovely man, and his death, particularly so soon after Shirley Ann's a fortnight ago, is sad and hard, and to be honest, I'm feeling it as a, as a significant body blow this morning, and uh, that's absolutely appropriate, I should do. It's right that we should feel sad and even shocked about these things, and that means that we must take time to talk and to express our lament when these things happen, and to seek God and to receive prayer, as many times as we need to. We walk out every season of life together here as a family. And finally, times like this remind us, they certainly should remind us, of what we already know to be true. Suffering is real, and God is good. And we need to hold these things in tension so that we appropriately feel and recognize the day-to-day -day realities of life, and yet keep our eyes firmly fixed on the one who has overcome it all. Brothers and sisters, in and out of season, we press on towards the goal, the upward call of God in Christ. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to work through John chapter 2, just as we'd planned to this morning, and just as I'm sure Nick would have wanted us to as well. Why don't you pray with me? King Jesus, I, um, I do thank you that as so far as I understand your word, I believe those things to be true. Suffering in this life is real. Death is a brutal enemy, but equally you've overcome it, and you've overcome all the things that we experience, and you alone are good. And sometimes it's difficult to make sense of why and what's going on in the world, but Lord, this morning I stand on those words in Romans 8.28, you're working through all things, the good and the bad, you're working through them to bring about good for your people. And in the very next verse, so that we might be conformed into the likeness of King Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we surrender to your purposes and your will this morning. Lord, I pray that as we entrust Nick to you, that peace would come amongst us and amongst his family as well. Lord, I pray you'd be glorified. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you this morning. Help us to see something of the glory and the wonder of who you are, your character and your nature and how you work in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... Um, we are going to be in uh, John 2 this morning. If you haven't got a Bible, I don't know, maybe the stewards could hand some out or on your phones or whatever. The words will come up on the screen as well, but it might just be helpful to track through John 2 as I'm speaking. 
uh, and you probably know by now, we are uh, working through the book of John throughout the rest of this year in a series that we've called Believe. In uh, John 20, at the end of the book, it tells us that this book is written, that the stories in this book are put together and written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what we're praying for. That's what I've been praying for this week as I've prepared, and that's why we're teaching through this book. We're actually going to be looking at two stories this morning, Um, two stories in John 2. The first one, I suspect most people will be familiar with at some level, even if uh, you're kind of new to church and maybe perhaps not yet a follower of Christ. It's the story of the marriage at Cana, the famous Jesus turning water into wine moment. And then the second story we're going to is the story of Jesus overturning the tables in the temple and chasing out the temple traders. They're two very different stories uh, that tell us two quite different but complementary things about Jesus' nature and how he works in our life. So we're going to kind of have to try and hold these two stories together today as we work through them. But let's read the first one together. This is John 2 verse 1. This is the wedding at Cana. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and the disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each of them holding from 80 to 120 liters, big jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, who, by the way, would have been a world-class sommelier. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay. There is so much to talk about here. This passage has several sermons in it, but I want to try and be disciplined and just try and pick out one or two lessons from the story. So there's a wedding, they run out of wine, Jesus' mum asks him to do something about it, and so he saves the day by filling up these stone jars with new wine. And this story makes the Bible as the first of Jesus' miracles by which he brings glory to himself. Why? Something of interest to note here is, um, is the stone jars themselves. They were huge stone jars lathed out of possibly even one piece of, uh, of stone. We're not quite sure. There's also been a significant amount of debate about how big these jars were and how much wine they would have held. To some degree, that's not really the point, although two things the text tells us about them. Firstly, it says that they were jars used by Jews for ceremonial washing. They were there for people to wash according to the rabbinic instructions before eating. And secondly, it says they held between 400 and 700 liters. 
So we're talking about a big wedding and a lot of water and a lot of wine as well. And that's because weddings in that culture could last for up to a week and could involve all sorts of people kind of coming and going throughout that entire time. And it was also, this is important, very much the responsibility of the groom's family to make sure that there were enough supplies, especially in such a shame and honor culture, as is true of many Middle Eastern cultures of the time. So to have enough provision at a wedding was a matter of extreme personal dignity for the bride and groom's family, so much so that the bride's family actually had the legal right to sue the groom in a situation like this. And so there was a, a, a really serious matter of possible shame at stake here. So again, it's helpful when you read some of these stories to kind of unwork our 21st century uh, experience and to try and situate yourself in what it would have been like there. We're not talking about 80 guests sat around round tables with their suits on like we would nowadays waiting for speeches and if you run out of wine someone kind of nips down to Waitrose and gets some more. The stakes were high. Scarcity in that culture had consequences and so the quantities were important and the fact that Jesus deals with this matter in the way that he does would right off the bat have communicated to that culture, and it should do to us too, that one of the hallmarks of his life and his ministry is that Jesus deals with and covers over our shame. I need you to hear that this morning if you are living with shame. Jesus can deal with that. We'll return to that later on, but that's a claim that the Christian faith makes. And the fact that Jesus uses these stone jars and the fact that this takes place at a wedding is significant for at least two reasons that I can think of. Firstly, one of the things that Jesus came to do was to dismantle the previously held Jewish law of ritual purification and cleansing and legalism that dictated how people could interact with God. In those days, as you probably know, to be in relationship with God, you had to obey all the laws and you had to be ritually clean. And only then could you be in relationship with God, and even then only through a third party, a priest. And as it tells us, these stone jars, which everyone would have been very able to see at the wedding, were there to ritually purify, to clean people in a way so that they could be right and stay right with God by adhering to his laws. That's how it used to be. And then Jesus comes into the world. And he announces that the way to be right with God has now changed. You no longer have to ritually cleanse yourself. In fact, it's really no longer down to you at all. One of the things that Jesus declares with his life is um, rather than us needing to, in some way, do stuff to please and approach God, God has now, through the sending of his Son, moved towards us. That shift is cataclysmic, and you should hear that today. The sending of Jesus is God the Father's declaration that he has moved towards you, even in your dirt and your pain and your mess and your scarcity. God the Father has moved towards you. And so he takes these stone jars in front of the whole wedding, the greatest symbols of the ritualistic requirements of the rabbinic law, objects of potential judgment, and in a flash, he turns them into objects of blessing. 
He's dismantling how people should relate to God. He's saying, clue, it's not what you do. It's not how clean you are. It's through me and what I do and how clean I am. I am the one who removes your shame or anything that condemns you to shame. And I have come not to bring the judgment of the law, but to offer mercy and grace and blessing. And in this case, the blessing is wine. And the blessing is at a wedding. And that, too, is meant to tell us something important. Because it says here in verse 11 that this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him, it says. In the, um, in the Old Testament, we often see the, the coming of salvation, the time of the long-awaited and anticipated Messiah who will save Israel and save God's people as a time of wine. In a culture where food could be scarce and harvest could be wiped out in a flash, wine was seen as a, a sign of favor and blessing and abundance, all the things that Jesus is. Joel 3.18, which is just one of very many examples. This one was written 400 years before Jesus. God chooses to express how he will come to his people, who at the time are in complete disarray like this. He says, in that day, when I restore the fortunes of my people and come to dwell with them in Zion, in that day, the mountains will drip new wine. Jesus coming to us is provision to you and I of new wine, and all that wine, when it's healthily enjoyed, is meant to represent celebration and abundance and blessing. But we also know that in all of life's circumstances, eventually the wine will run out, so to speak. Maybe it feels that way for you this morning. Maybe it feels that the wine has run out and the days of joy and peace are far from you. That happens. It's part of the human condition, as we've well experienced already today. Here's what the story tells us. Jesus is the new wine. Jesus is the wine of abundance. Jesus is the wine that purifies. Jesus is the wine that removes our shame. Jesus is the wine that represents the restoration of our brokenness. He is the wine that represents that God has come to dwell with us, with you. And he alone is the new wine that takes away the need for us to get it all right and clean ourselves up before we can come to God, since he alone is now the way to come to God. And we are meant to draw on him like he instructed those servants, and to drink of his peace and his abundance. This is good news for us this morning as we face the sharp sting of the sufferings of life. Jesus shows in this story that he's enough. Wine eventually always gives out, folks. There's only so much that we can amass and bring to the party. There's only so much of ourselves that we can rely on to fulfill our needs. Wine will eventually always run out. Here's what I believe Jesus would want you to know. When you say yes to Jesus and abide in that place, when you stay in him, we are connected to the vine. That's literally a metaphor he uses of himself by the time we get to John 15. We are connected to the vine that always provides. Jesus is the new wine. When we come to him, at best, we give over water, but he provides wine. Yeah. When your provision is out, maybe you feel that way today. I've run out. 
come to the end of my provision, I've come to the end of myself, I've got nothing to give, and there's nothing I own and nothing I do and nobody I know that really satisfies the deep needs of my heart, come to Jesus today, the true vine, the new wine. Bring your watery offering. Bring whatever is left of yourself. Bring your limping body and your emaciated soul, if you have to, and present it to him. He provides the wine of gladness and abundance. Wine that causes us to be glad, like guests at a wedding. Everybody loves a good wedding. At weddings, we witness two parties joining together as one and making a promise of the hope for the future. And we love promise and hope. And look where we are in the story. We're at a wedding. That's where Jesus chooses to perform his first miraculous sign. And that's not surprising either, because the whole story of the Bible is about a wedding. It's heading to a wedding. We are heading to a wedding, a wedding of promise and hope. The Bible is all about God. Come to us in the person of Jesus, who has married himself to us, who walks alongside us and saves us, and removes our shame, but it finds a conclusion in Revelation 21 and 22, where? At the marriage feast of the Lamb, where you and I are invited. This story points to a bigger story about what God is doing, and one day, at the end of human history, Jesus is coming back, and he will defeat every foe, and he will meet every need, and he will call out his bride, that's us, his people, And we, the bride, will celebrate the advent of eternity with him, the bridegroom. And the way the the Bible describes this moment is as a wedding. We enter into eternity, friends, together with resurrected bodies, hallelujah, as we begin the rest of time, as we, the bride, marry Jesus, the bridegroom, and we celebrate the wedding feast of heaven together all eternity. Cana, this little wedding, foreshadows something of the hugeness of God's plan for us in eternity. Hence, here, Jesus performs his first sign and reveals his glory. I don't know about you, if I was going to perform a miracle and reveal my glory, I'd probably choose to win 100-meter men's Olympic gold in the sprint final or something. But even that glory would one day fade. Wine always runs out. Our wine always runs dry. But in Jesus, we are connected to the vine that always provides. And what he provides is always what we need. He invites you near again today. He invites you near again every day. If your wine has run out, there is no need for shame. He is in the business of removing shame and providing what we need. I'd really love us to um, pray continually for Morris and Grace at the moment. There they are, this lovely couple who I very dearly love. Morris is in kidney failure at the moment and is in desperate need of a kidney donor and finds himself number 6,000 on the NHS list for that. And so I've been praying as I've been preparing this week and thinking about this. Jesus provides what we need. Morris needs a kidney donor. Let's pray for Morris. Let's pray for this man and do it unceasingly and faithfully. Let's call out to God that he has what Morris needs. These guys aren't able to get to church very often because Morris is so unwell. Um, Vixen and I and Nathaniel were around there earlier this week and they said, 
One of the things they're facing is loneliness and isolation. That's quite normal. Guys bomb them with love, text them, show up at their house. They're Africans. They love it. <laughs> Come round. I'm sure there'll be food. Sorry about that, Grace. I've just... <laughs> Let's pray for these guys. Morris, Jesus has what you need. He has what you need. He proved that at a little wedding in Cana. He's doing it in eternity. And he sure as anything can do it in your life right now. He has wine for you. He has provision for you. He has blessing for you. He has abundance for you. He has joy for you. He has dignity for you. He has a wedding for you. There'll be an opportunity to respond to all this stuff later on. But the simple instruction of response, just to warm you up for that moment, is the same as Jesus gave the simple instruction to the servants. Just draw out some wine. Simple instruction. Just come and draw from him today. For our, um, for our second story... We're leaving the provinces, and we're going up to the great temple of Herod, right in the heart of downtown Jerusalem. This was the epicenter of worship in Israel, and it's the feast of the Passover. Now, again, we kind of need to just situate ourselves well in the story to fully see it and to understand its extensiveness. Just um, to try and visualize this, I think there is actually a picture. There you go. That's not a photograph again. Um, this, uh, this is the temple complex, which consisted of, you can see there, kind of outer courts where those columns are, which had space for meeting, and where in those days women were allowed to worship and non-Jews were allowed to worship, and then a series of inner courts. Uh, the holier you were, the better accredited you were, the closer to the center you could get. Such was the religious system of the day. So Jews in the inner court, priests in the very inner part of the inner court, and everyone else. Gentiles, women, anyone considered to be impure by the religious law, well, they were allowed in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. The um, entirety of this temple complex was about 35 acres. It was huge, and it was busy at the Passover, which was the chief of all the festivals. People would descend from all over the place, and we're not, we're not talking about a few hundred people. We're talking about 300 to 400,000 worshippers descending on the temple. And it's here, in the outer court section, the shopping mall-like, crowded, noisy outer court for Gentiles that we find ourselves in the story, in amongst the melee of the travelers and the worshippers and the smells and the noise and the traders. This is the story of Jesus clearing the temple courts. Let's read this. This is uh, John 2, verse 13. We'll see another facet of Jesus in the story. It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts, that's the outside courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove out all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered, this is important, that it is written in their own scriptures Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who are you? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up again in three days. They replied, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
This is, um, this is another fascinating story. I've come across teaching before that suggested that what was happening here is that Jesus was a bit grumpy because he was having a hypoglycemic low, because he hadn't eaten properly, and that the idea was we're supposed to eat well. That's not what's going on in the story. That's not what it's trying to teach us. To understand the background, people, because people were traveling to this festival from all over the Roman Empire, they had need of traders. So rather than, I don't know, bring your sheep or your doves or your sacrifice and drag it all the way from a, kind of across the, the Roman Empire, hundreds of miles away, it was a convenience to arrive at Jerusalem and to be able to buy one there. And there was also a tax to pay at the temple as well. So it was useful to have money changers there who could swap your Turkish coins, for example, for Jerusalem coins and so on. The fact that people were trading wasn't really the issue. The issue is where they were trading and what was taking priority. The temple, the church, the gathered people of God, but the temple was meant to be the place where above all else and exclusively practiced by all people was the worship of God. The temple, this giant imposing place where the world descended for the Passover was supremely designated to serve as the focal point between God and man. It was here that you offered sacrifice as an act of contrition for your sin, and you were symbolically made clean. And through the priest who went into the inner courts for you, the relationship between you and God was restored and made right for the next season of life, and then they'd come back and do it all again the following year. And instead of the gentle murmur of prayer and the bowed heads of contrition and repentance and the songs of worship, Jesus is confronted by market sellers, probably shouting their prices over the crowd, strawberries, pound upon it, money being passed around, animal dung on the floor, and he is rightly grieved. This is my father's house, he shouts. Get out of here with your trading. Stop turning what should be a place of holiness and reverence and relationship with God into a place where you can make a financial profit. And then the disciples, who are standing around watching all this happen, they remember the words from their scriptures from hundreds of years ago, words that previously King David had said in a time of intense pressure when he himself saw things that weren't right in the practice in the temple. In Psalm 69, King David said something like this, life is terrible and my enemies are mounting up and people hate me for your sake, O Lord, so rescue me because zeal for your house consumes me. The house of the Lord is meant to be a place of prayer for all the nations where God is reverenced and his worship rings out. And here it is, a filthy market. And so, fulfilling the words of David, a greater David, a greater king, a greater son of God comes in the person of Jesus, consumed with zeal for God. That word consumed in Greek, it's, it's more like torn apart. He is torn apart with zeal for the right worship of the Father, and he comes to restore pure worship by driving out the traders. And one day in the not-too-distant future for these guys, his zeal for God and his mission to restore right relationship between man and God will literally see him torn apart on the cross. Zeal for his Father's house zeal to establish right worship, zeal to clean up the house of God by bringing us into relationship with God will soon consume him on the cross for our sake and for the glory of God. He is consumed. He is torn apart. 
He's not hungry in the story. It's not like he didn't have enough figs and honey for lunch on the way into town. He's zealous for God. He's zealous to see him rightly worshipped and his house used for this purpose. And rightly so, and so should we be. Here's, here's one of the challenges of this story. It's a, it's a subtle one, and it's a difficult one to thread well, but it's a really important one for us. We can come to the worship of God with what we believe are the right and helpful practices, a bit like these temple traders did. They probably thought they were being helpful, and there was definitely a glimmer of that in what they were doing. We can quite easily slip into our own version of temple trading. We can offer up a type of service to God. We can, for example, read how much we read the Bible that day and chalk it up as, I've read three chapters and I'm good with God. Or we can pray for several hours. That's no bad thing. We can fast all day. Again, no bad thing. But if we use these things which are there to express relationship with God, not to somehow earn it, if we use them as the basis of our rightness, we've got it the wrong way around. We're really no different to the guys who came to the temple thinking they were doing a good thing by buying and selling animals in the outer courts. God does not fundamentally require action or religious practice from you to be right with him. If our functions before him take the place of a heart of love for him, zeal for him, we can end up doing ourselves more harm than good. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Service is good. Prayer is good. Bible reading is essential. Fasting is right. But what he desires more than all else is a contrite and repentant heart that is willing to daily say, I'm sorry. I need you. And I believe if we practice all the right religious stuff and miss this, we've got it the wrong way around. And I know, and I know you know, how easy it is to fall into that trap and to do the stuff, to tick in the box, day after day and month after month. I've kept up my Bible reading, I've prayed today, I've given money to charity or to the church, I'm all right with God, and at the same time, to have no real relationship with Him at all. Prayer, praise, fasting, giving, these are all things that we should do, and they should help us to express and demonstrate our love for God and to sustain us once we have given our hearts to Him. That's what Jesus is challenging in the story. That's one of the things he's trying to communicate. He's saying that far above any function that you perform for God, what is actually important is a heart of zeal for him, a heart of repentance and praise and trust. In fact, he's grieved by this, uh, the fact that this type of negotiation and bartering is happening in the name of the Lord. This is possibly the relevance of him driving the animals from the temple courtyard that at one level... Jesus is declaring that the time for animal sacrifice and doing stuff as a means to make you right with God is about to be done away with. He will be our sacrifice. He will be the one who restores right relationship between us and God. He will be both the sacrificial lamb given to us for us, <coughs> excuse me, and he will be the priest who presents us to God. All this temple transaction and bartering and negotiating is unnecessary in light of what he is about to do. Thank you. The, um, <clears throat> the Westminster Catechism, some of you would have come across that, is a statement of belief for the church. <coughs> Excuse me, it's written in the 1600s. It's written in the style of questions and answers, and its purpose was to kind of create a unity of belief, a declaration of what Christians <coughs> should believe and do. And it says this as its opening sentence. The chief end of man... In other words, our ultimate purpose is two things. 
It's to glorify God and it's to enjoy Him forever. That's it. How wonderful is that? These are not words of function. These are words of relationship. Our purpose is to bring glory to the God who we love and to enjoy Him. Enjoy God today. You could just as easily flip that order. And this is really important. This has really been helpful in my own faith life. We glorify God by enjoying Him. And we enjoy Him the way we enjoy anyone, in relationship with Him, in conversation with Him, in exploring Him, in becoming like Him, in learning from Him, in joyfully and freely serving Him. That's what we're doing. That's what we should be doing as we bring ourselves to the discipline, and these things are disciplines, of reading the Word, and of praying, and of giving. We're enjoying the God who we already love. And as we enjoy Him, and as we serve Him, in all of these ways, we are glorifying Him. We're saying that you're worthy of all of our time and praise and our activity. <coughs> Excuse me. God is glorified in us as we enjoy Him in relationship. So, the Jewish crowd, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the others, they crowd around Jesus and they say, essentially, what authorizes you to behave like this? What credentials do you have? What sign do you bring to declare God as your father and to overturn our trading, temple, uh, trading tables? And he answers their questions saying, you look for a sign, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. And of course, they scoff and laugh and they say, they look at this 35-acre stone temple and they say, it took us 46 years to build this. And you one man say you're going to uh, raise it up in three days. But in the next verse, verse 21, it says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Of course, the Jewish religious leaders think that Jesus is talking about Herod's temple being raised in three days, and they must have thought he was mad. I probably would have myself. But Jesus, look at this, is declaring himself to be the temple, the temple that would be consumed and torn apart and then raised up again after three days. That's the sign. That's the credential that they're looking for and completely missing. That's the basis of his authority to call God Father and to clear out his house for right worship. Jesus is saying that he is the temple, the place where people from all the corners of the earth can come and find forgiveness through sacrifice, sacrifice that he made, could find all that they need to make things right with God, could meet with a priest and be presented to God, the priest that he now is, the place that the nations of the earth find their truest expression of worship, the boast of the nations, the cry of every heart. Jesus is saying he is that place. He is the temple. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is where mankind comes to God. Jesus is the place where we find forgiveness that fixes broken relationship with God. He is the temple that will be torn down at the cross and after three days be raised up again. And in this temple, in the person of Jesus, there is no division between priest and Jew and Gentile, and there is no need to offer burnt sacrifices and hope for the best. In Jesus, all are welcome, and every single sin is forgiven, and every single soul is made new, and every single life can find freedom in relationship with God. Jesus is the true and better temple, the place we can come, brothers and sisters, together coalesce around Him to meet with God, the one in whom all the nations of the earth find their joy. At the wedding 
in Cana, he revealed his glory and the disciples believed. His glory was revealed as he presented himself as the new wine of God, the God who had come to us and who invites you to draw from him. At the temple, he also revealed his glory and the disciples believed. His glory was revealed as he presented himself as the true and better temple of God in which we could turn and run and find shelter and peace with God. This is significant stuff with real-life implications for us, and they invite a response. They aren't just quaint stories from a bygone age. These are stories of life for you if you feel dead. These are stories of provision for you if you have run out. These are stories of peace and relationship with God for you if you are hopeless. Friends, the offer made by these stories is to come quickly. Come to the new wine that is offered you today. There is a wedding and you are invited. In fact, it's better than that. You're involved because today, if you don't yet know Jesus, could be your marriage day. Come to the temple that is King Jesus. He offers to clear out the noise and the rabble and the dung so that you can come to God freely today. Whatever your need today, whatever your state of heart or soul, God has come to us. He has moved towards you in his son. He has covered your shame. He offers you new wine, the very best wine. He declares himself the temple, the focal point of all history, and he calls you in, the focal point by which we meet with God in right worship and right relationship to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. What an invitation in Jesus invitation is made and in Jesus there is fullness of life and there is peace and there is abundance it's free and it's for you will you pray with me King Jesus thank you for these stories which I remember reading when I was in Sunday school and thinking oh that's neat thank you for what they really tell us about who you are thank you for the fact that you are now the new wine that has come to us and provides all that we need. Thank you that your promise and your invitation is just to come and abide in you. That's what you say in John 15, abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Lord, we come to you again today in our need and we just abide in you as branches. Lord, I thank you that all the energy and all the power and all the resource comes to us from you. And so today, for any here who feel lack, I pray that they would find that provision of new wine in you. Jesus, thank you that you're the temple. Thank you that you are the one in whom the nations of the earth descend and coalesce and find God and find peace with God and find relationship with God. Thank you that you're the one who drives out the rabble. You're the one who drives out the mess. You're the one who makes our hearts clean. Jesus, I ask that you would help us now as we sing these songs to respond to you in heart and mind and body and soul. In your name, amen. Amen. Can we stand? Let's come respond. Jesus in your glory, come and fill this place, come and have 